0: Okay, well, today we return to our series on the Pentateuch, and um, we are getting close to finishing this up, if you've been keeping track, and we will do that on the last Sunday of this month, so just three more sermons to go, including the one today, and to celebrate its completion, we are scheduling a party on its final day, February 27th, in the form of a Terry's Deli which we haven't had since November of 2019. It's well over 2000 uh, well over 2000 years ago. Well over, well over felt like feels like it doesn't it. Well over 2 years ago. So, um, there's just one small catch regarding Estelle. In order to join the food line, you'll have to pass a final exam which will review all the material that we have covered. It's just 100 questions, but they are essay questions. So, is it on a pink sheet of paper? <laughs> Several pink sheets. <laughs> 20 years ago, you would have been serious. Yeah, 20 years ago, I would have been serious. That's right. Because we actually did that once at the picnic. We couldn't eat the hamburgers that were frying five feet away from us until we all completed a quiz on James. How many were there? How many have forgiven me? A few people have forgiven me. All right. Uh, You will remember that in this series, we've spent a fair amount of time covering the purpose of the Pentateuch's narratives, how to interpret and understand them, and of course, application, what we are and are not to take away from them. And then recently, um, like last month, we looked at a few examples of how to do this, and we looked at three different stories from Genesis. So for our purposes here in this series, we pretty much covered what we wanted to concerning narratives. We now return to the subject return to it the subject of the Pentateuch's laws. Again, in previous months, we spent a fair amount of time going over the purpose of those laws and have wrestled with the big question of whether they still apply to us today, and if so, how. And we looked at examples of this as well, mostly from Leviticus 19. You might remember this. There is a section there often referred to as the Holiness Codes, and we worked through that chapter verse by verse considering modern-day applications based on the principles that we had learned. Okay, how many remember that? All right, not as many as I'd hoped. (laughs) All right, so in that chapter, there were two Holiness Codes, two laws given to Moses that I purposely skipped over so as to save them for another time when we could give them more attention, and that time has now come. The first one is found in verse 3, you don't have to turn there, but there um, God commands the ancient Hebrews to keep my Sabbaths. And this, of course, would immediately remind us of the Ten Commandments where where one of them, the fourth one, is this charge to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. The second one from Leviticus in that chapter there that I skipped over is further down in verse 38 where it reads, you are not to make gashes on your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. So today and next Sunday, we're going to tackle the question about the Sabbath, and then on February 27th, we'll deal with tattoos, and that will finish the series. And Terry's Deli will serve not just as a way to celebrate the completion of the series, but also as a meal of healing and reconciliation. As tempers will no doubt heat up during the room, uh, during that sermon, I fully expect angry stares, rotten fruit to be thrown at me, throngs of people storming out, slamming the door, screeching out of the parking lot. Okay. Unless there's ice. Unless there's ice, then people will just slide into the cars, which will only get other people upset. What? So a
1: typical
0: Sunday. A typical Sunday, yes. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> but that's, that's it for today. You've already spent your... All right. So, what about Christians getting tattoos in light of Leviticus 19:38? Now, actually this is not it won't be all that controversial, but I kind of have to set it up that way is to make sure that you'll make the effort to get here. All right. But today our attention is on the Sabbath. Are Christians obligated to keep it? If so, why and how? How do we keep it? And this question is also controversial, but it generally doesn't uh, generate that much heat as it once did in generations past, but yet to this day there is not a general consensus consensus on the matter. So this should prove to be a good exercise for us, and we're going to take the principles that we've learned in this series about Old Testament laws and apply them to those laws that deal with the Sabbath. But we're actually going to save that exercise for next Sunday. For today, I thought it might be appropriate to set the stage up a little bit by looking at how the Church has dealt with this question through the centuries. And it actually gets a little complicated because, as you know, Sunday is not really the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday, and so Christians have been all over the map when it comes to applying the command, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Therefore, I believe it would be helpful to get some of that background here before we tackle it ourselves. So some of you might remember that I talked about this a while back, around five years ago, and so some of the material today might sound a little familiar. The point is, things have evolved over a 2,000-year period here in the church. The way Christians think about the Sabbath and its relationship to Sunday has changed through the centuries, and so we could frame today's message as, a, as this, a history of Sunday. And again, I think this will set things up quite well for what we, want, what we plan to do next week. All right, sound good? All right? even if it didn't sound good, we're still going to do it. So here we go. We're going to work our way through this by looking at four major time periods. The first one is before Constantine. This would be from the New Testament era to the beginning of the 4th century. And then from Constantine to the Middle Ages, the 4th and 5th centuries, basically. And then the Middle Ages... Um, A a longer time period from the 5th century to the 15th century, and then uh, the Reformation and beyond. So we'll start here with the first period, what we might call the the primitive church. The first thing we want to deal with here is talk about uh, the naming of the day itself. In the New Testament, the day we call Sunday is typically referred to as the first day of the week and this is in keeping with the ancient Hebrew calendar and continues to be reflected in our modern-day calendars as well. In the original language, however, the phrase translated first day of the week is actually the first day from the Sabbath. Monday, then, would be the second day from the Sabbath. Tuesday is the third day from the Sabbath, and so on. Eventually, as the church became less Jewish and more Gentile, Christians naturally adopted the practice of referring to the days of the week with the common Roman names. Each day is actually named after a heavenly body, a deity. I think we're all aware of this. Saturday for Saturn, Monday for the moon, Thursday for Jupiter, Sunday for, come on, this one's easy, the sun, all right, and so on. So, and there was no small amount of resistance from Christians to um, this practice at first, but eventually it became the standard. Now in the book of Revelation, John refers to Sunday as the Lord's Day, and it became a common practice for Christians to use that name as well. And we can safely assume that John referred to Sunday as the Lord's Day because it was the day the Lord rose from the dead. All right, let's now consider uh, the matter of when the early Christians met, and contrary to what is often thought, the New Testament does not mandate a day of the week for Christians to meet on. However, it does appear that Sunday was the day Paul instructs the Corinthians to set aside their contributions for relief efforts in uh, in Jerusalem on the first day of the week, implying, of course, that this is when uh, the the believers assembled together, suggesting that this was a common practice. But other than this, there just isn't that much in the New Testament about when when, uh, believers gathered. We know that they did, but not much is said about when. Certainly, there is no command regarding it. We know from er, other early Christian literature, however, that Sunday was the standard practice, and that's because Sunday was the day of the Lord's victory and it was therefore a day of victory for all who believed in Him. We might also know um, note that this period um, Christians met, we, we also know that during this period Christians met on other days of the week as well. And there were days that they observed certain disciplines but did not necessarily meet. Eventually, during this time period here, uh, there came to be a weekly cycle of observances. Wednesdays and Fridays were days of fasting and remembrance of the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus. Even to this day, as you know, many Catholics will abstain from eating meat on Fridays based on this very early tradition. When I was a small child, I remember that many of the stores, at least in Huntington, closed on Wednesday afternoons so as to provide an opportunity for the community to meet together for prayer. Saturday in the early church was a day of rest whenever possible in observance of the Sabbath, especially for Jewish Christians, but Sunday became the primary day that Christians came together, but this had nothing to do with Sunday being the new Sabbath and it had nothing to do with Sundays being available as a day off work. And because at that time, Sunday, during this period here, was a typical work day. It's kind of hard for us to visualize that, but it was. Christians look forward to Sundays with great anticipation. This was a special day when they got to join with other believers in celebrating the resurrection of their Savior. Even the Lord's Supper itself um, was not solely focused on the death of Jesus. Contrary to what we might think, communion in those early years was not observed in a gloomy or somber mood, but one of joy and victory. Much of the focus was on what Jesus had accomplished, his conquering of death, sin, and the devil. And the Lord's Supper then was marked by thanksgiving, joy, gratitude, which greatly influenced the um, the the whole meeting, the whole assembly, the whole gathering. Right now, as you may recall, um, that in the Jewish custom, a day began and ended at sunset, not midnight. We have to kind of always remember this, it kind of can throw us off a little bit. And of course, most of the believers at the very beginning were Jews. And so, this breaking of bread and fellowship early on the first day of the week that we read about in the New Testament probably took place after the setting of the sun on our Saturday. Uh, So again, to the Jews, including Christian Jews, Saturday evening would have been the beginning of the first day of the week. Follow that? And so, for instance, when we read in 1 Corinthians 11 that some of the believers were becoming gluttons and drunkards at the Lord's Supper, well, it's a little hard to visualize that being the case if we are thinking that they were meeting early on Sunday mornings, but not if we see it taking place after sunset on Saturdays. All right, so... However, as the decades went by and the number of Gentiles in the church increased, this time together was pushed back to a later time, namely before sunrise on Sunday. And this is because for Gentiles, the beginning of the first day of the week was not after sunset but after midnight. Now, if we're going to honor the Lord on Sunday, then let's meet on Sunday is what they were telling themselves, not Saturday night because they observed the days differently. And so, over the course of time, the common practice was to get up earlier than usual and meet before sunrise, early on Sunday, before the workday began. Not 10 o'clock like us, but more like 5 o'clock. So, we can only imagine the problems of people coming in late and sleeping during the sermons and so on. <laughs> of course, my mind would just instantly go there, wouldn't it? <laughs> what? Good thing we don't have the problem now. Good thing we don't have the problem now. <laughs> At 10 o'clock, we don't have that problem at all. All right. Let's do that sermon. Let's just put that on pause for a minute. I have it ready. Here's another point worth noting. While there were a number of Christian leaders who claimed that Jesus had fulfilled or abolished the law of keeping the Sabbath, we don't find any suggestion that Sunday had now taken the place of the Sabbath. And this was not a view that the Christians had, at least during this time period. Some argued that Christians should still keep the Sabbath, but to do that on the seventh day, Saturday. And they suggested that Saturday be a day of rest so as to prepare oneself for Sunday's very early morning celebration. But even this was not a widely held view or practice. Jewish communities would uh, not work on Saturday, and so Jewish believers could do this. But for Gentiles, working for other Gentiles, Saturday was just another workday. And so in this time period from the New Testament to Constantine, we see that there is no expectation that on, that on Sunday one is to rest from his or her labors. There's no expectation that work is forbidden. There's no suggestion that the fourth commandment now applied to Sunday or that the whole day had to be devoted to prayer, meditation, and the study of Scripture, much less a day of somber reflection and self-denial, like you can't go shopping or watch football or TV or that sort of thing. In fact, we see just the opposite. Um, Sunday, I think I missed a slide. Sunday was a day of celebrating the victory of Jesus, which included feasting and rejoicing. And interestingly, even gestures of contrition like fasting and kneeling were discouraged on Sundays. You—that's the sort of thing you do on Wednesdays and Fridays. And again, during this time period, there's no such um, custom of enjoying Sunday off work. It was a normal work day for both Jews and Gentiles. Early believers met before dawn in their weekly assemblies. And then once the sun came up and the day began, they would go about their usual daily affairs like attending to their jobs, for instance. And they may have met again in the evening after their daily duties. It could have, but I really couldn't find any information about that. Also, we should note that during this time period, believers suffered many seasons of intense persecution uh, from both Roman authorities and their fellow citizens, and so Christians often had to meet in secret. It's another part of this, um, uh, it's another factor in all this as well. All right, so with that, let's now move on to the next period from Constantine to the Middle Ages. This would be basically the fourth and fifth centuries. Obviously, the most important factor during this period is the changed status of Christianity from a persecuted faith to a favored religion of the Roman Empire. And later in the 4th century, it becomes the official religion of of Rome. Um, And this all began with an edict from the emperor in the year 313. But there was another edict eight years later from Constantine that also shifted the landscape of the Christian faith. And a lot of people are not aware of this one. In 321, Constantine decreed the following, on the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest and let all workshops be closed. All right, this is the, 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 this is the decree. The next paragraph serves as a qualifier. In the country, however, persons engaged in agriculture may freely and lawfully continue their pursuits because it often happens that another day is not suitable for grain sowing or vine planting, lest by neglecting the proper moment for such operations the bounty of heaven should be lost. So a couple of observations. First, contrary to common thinking, Constantine is not the one who made Sunday the Christian day of worship. You still hear that from time to time. Christians were already meeting on Sunday mornings before sunrise, well before Constantine ever arrived on the scene. Secondly, Constantine does not decree that Sunday becomes a day of worship. It's not what this decree is about. Only that it became a day of rest. There's nothing in his words to suggest that people now have to worship God on Sundays or are required to go to church and that sort of thing. What isn't exactly clear is the why. What's the reason for this edict? As you look at it, you can see that there's nothing in the wording to, su- to suggest that this is to honor God or to honor Christ, And indeed, Constantine's faith, as you know, has long been a mystery for historians. In some ways, he seems to have been a Christian. In other ways, he seems to have carried on his family's devotion to the pagan deity, the unconquered sun, of which the day Sunday was named after. And his decree here in 321 seems to accommodate both. But whatever the case, the thing that grabs our attention is that this is the first time that Sunday becomes a day of rest. The first time. Now, there were all sorts of ramifications to this edict. First, uh, since everyone has the day off, Christians can now meet a little later in the morning, well after sunrise. Imagine Josh coming up and giving the great news at announcement time. You know, next Sunday we get to meet at 10 o'clock instead of five, you know, and everybody applauding. And these meetings can now run a little longer. There weren't jobs that believers had to hurry up and get to. And over the course of time, longer meetings lent themselves to more elaborate worship, and now that Christianity was legal, there came to be more converts and church buildings and larger buildings and more elaborate buildings, and all this contributed to more elaborate worship, more decorations, more ceremony, and so on. Even the music was impacted by these changes. It, too, became more splendid, more beautiful, and more complicated to the point that a trained choir was needed to sing it. And all this evolved over time, but eventually the task of the congregation was to simply come and watch and listen. There was this shift from being, a, from being participants to being spectators. Everyone follow that? So whether good or bad, Constantine's two edicts really did change things up. He made it easier not only for Christians to freely gather by legalizing the faith, but also freed up the time needed for longer gatherings, more elaborate and ceremonious. And like any law that is made, um, you need a hundred other laws to clarify it, quantify it, and expand it. And so in the decades and centuries that followed, there would be no shortage of both civil and church laws that would build on Constantine's decree, laws that would specify what kind of work on Sunday would be allowed and not allowed, and not just work, but other activities. And as to be expected, this connection of Sunday with the rest will eventually lead to all sorts of discussions as to whether Sunday now replaced the Sabbath or becomes the new Sabbath, and so on. And this became more of a question after Constantine, but um, he certainly laid the groundwork for it. All right, now for the third period, the Middle Ages. This would be roughly a thousand-year period from the fall of Rome to around the time of the Reformation. This is a complicated period. We can't take time to dig into a lot of the details here, and a lot of it, as you can imagine, involves Roman Catholic tradition and theology. Several points stand out during the Middle Ages that will help explain later developments. The first of these is the ongoing legislation regarding rest on Sundays. Constantine himself made no mention of honoring God in his decree, but those who followed him certainly did. And these laws initiated by both civil and church leaders contributed to the sense of seeing Sunday as a holy day. And this, of course, furthered a process whereby Sunday was increasingly seen as the Christian Sabbath. Third, the focus of attention in the Lord's Supper shifted from the body of Christ as the fellowship of those who are present to the body of Christ now present in the bread itself. And so what drove believers to church on Sundays was not necessarily any teaching that the church provided, you know, like discipleship and that sort of thing, nor was it the mutual edification that came from interacting with other believers. It was this obligation to receive Christ's body in the ceremony of the mass, and this was now the highest priority. With the growing emphasis on the Lord's Supper as the renewed sacrifice of Christ, That ancient rite, originally one of joy and victory, now took on funeral overtones, centering not on what had been accomplished in his death, and thus what that means for our future hope, but rather on the sufferings of the cross and human sin that made Christ's suffering necessary. Then once you fulfilled the obligation to attend Mass... The rest of the day was typically given to all kinds of entertainment, entertainment that was typically objectionable and immoral. Thus Sunday was both a day of great and over and the day of the great and overwhelming spectacle of the renewed sacrifice of Christ, and the day of many other spectacles, as they say, that often showed precisely why that sacrifice was necessary. All right, and now for the final period, the Reformation and beyond. um, This would include the Puritans and beyond them, 15th century on. And again, we can only do a quick survey of this time period, try to hit some of the major developments. But it is during this time period that the views of Sunday as a mandatory day of rest get cemented in. And this is largely due to the influence of the Puritans. So several facts stand out. Not so much the Lutherans, but the Reformed and Anabaptist streams of the Reformation adopted a simpler form of worship, cutting back on what was seen as the excesses of ritual and ceremony. So they favored something a whole lot, or favored something a, uh, a lot less elaborate, less Elaborate. Protestants also encouraged congregational participation, especially music and songs of worship, and they wanted to accommodate the local culture of each church rather than impose on everyone the exact same style and format. This change was most notable in that they used the common language of the people rather than Latin, for instance. And there were efforts among Protestants to simplify the ecclesiastical calendar, like doing away with all those days honoring all the various saints, and this itself led to a greater emphasis on Sunday itself. And also the need to educate the laity on the basic truths of Protestantism, which led to more teaching and preaching from the scriptures, which took place mostly on Sundays. And then finally, most um, Protestant reformers agreed that at some point in earlier, some, somewhere in early church history, though they cannot pin this down, the church had transferred the observance of the seventh day of the, week, of the week, the Jewish Sabbath, to the first day of the week, Sunday, as the new Christian Sabbath. And very important, they accepted this as valid. And interestingly, this very point was used by the Catholics to show that even Protestants at times will accept the authority of tradition over scripture. Very interesting. and this caused some Protestants to react. And they stopped and they took another look at this. Like, hey, the Catholics got a point about that. We need to rethink this. And out of this came three main views about the relationship of the Sabbath day to Sunday. So everything we've talked about so far this morning has been leading up to this, these three views. First, we have the common view, popular at that time and popular today, that Sunday is the new Sabbath most likely, this is the view that you grew up with. You know, you are, you are supposed to anyway, go to church, set the day aside as holy, rest, don't work, don't go shopping, don't go to the movies, that sort of thing. <clears throat> and then we have those who refute this claim, pointing out that this is based on conjecture and not scripture. They argue that the New Testament doesn't mandate any particular day for Christian worship much less teach that Sunday is the new Sabbath. There's nothing in the Bible about this. And they would go on to say that Sunday works well because most people are available and because it is the day of the week that Jesus rose, but nothing says it has to be Sunday. And so while the Bible exhorts Christians to meet on a regular basis, we are free, according to this argument, to arrange that however we want. And there's no obligation to refrain from work on Sundays or, for that matter, from amusements and recreation. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have what are called the Sabbatarians, like the Seventh-day Adventists, who argue quite passionately that the Fourth Commandment still stands, but it applies to what day of the week? Saturdays, the actual Sabbath day, and not Sundays. Sunday is just a normal, typical day. Saturday is the holy day. No one has the right to change the day of rest and worship from what God ordained in the Pentateuch. As to be expected, there became quite a bit of debate over all three of these positions, and oftentimes that debate got bitter, and one historian noted that, quote, the Sabbath itself had no rest. (laughs) In the end, it was the first position that gained the most momentum, and this because of an argument first advanced by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. It's an argument that the Puritans in particular took, and they embraced, and they developed it, and it continues to be prevalent even today. It goes like this. See what you think about it. It begins with the claim that the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, is both moral and ceremonial. So some of this, you should remember our discussions on this. As a ceremonial commandment, it ordered the keeping of the seventh day. But since the purpose of all ceremonial laws was to point to Jesus, this part of the commandment is no longer in force, no longer binding, and this is because Jesus fulfilled it. It was a shadow of things to come. And in particular, the Sabbath day pointed to the rest from our works, salvation by faith, not works, and to our entrance into the promised land, the new kingdom. And Jesus has accomplished this for us. And so as a ceremonial law, it is no longer binding. As a moral commandment, however, it orders a universal day of rest, both as a matter of justice, provide rest and relief to workers so as to not exploit them, and as a matter of setting aside a time, a whole day of the week for devotion to God. Rest from work so that one can have sufficient time for corporate worship and also for the personal study of scripture, reflection, and prayer, a day devoted to God which would then mean that one should refrain from earthly amusements, one out of seven days. And so as a moral law, the fourth commandment is still binding. Another part of the argument is that the resurrection of Jesus orders this change from Saturday to Sunday. Again, this view that Sunday is both moral and ceremonial was not without opponents, but it has more or less become the prevailing position among both Catholics and Protestants. But as you can see, this argument does assume a lot. It assumes that the fourth commandment is a moral law, it assumes that everything about the observance of the Old Testament Sabbath now applies to Sunday, and it assumes that the resurrection of Jesus somehow dictates this change from Saturday to Sunday. And all this may be true, but the New Testament itself doesn't really say this. And so it also assumes that we are supposed to know God's mind about all of this apart from Scripture. So even if you were convinced by this argument, and many are, it would seem that, you'd have, that you'd have to, it would have to be held with a light grip, um, but we'll talk more about that next Sunday. So here are some consequences of this view being entrenched in the church at large. Sunday becomes the new Sabbath in the way that it is observed and in the way that it is referred to. Even today, if you were to use the word Sabbath in casual conversation, the other person would would automatically assume that you were referring to what day of the week? Sunday. Sunday, not Saturday. And because honoring Sunday is seen as one of the Ten Commandments, the fear of God becomes a strong motivator. The Puritans actually taught that if the Sabbath, Sunday, is not honored, God would visit the whole nation with his wrath. And since it was commonly believed that the purpose of civil laws is to regulate society according to the will of God, governments passed laws regarding the observance of Sunday that was binding on all citizens, including non-Christians, because if there were no civil laws in place to regulate and enforce the keeping of the Sabbath, then certainly the nation would be inviting God's anger. And we have reports of women getting fined for doing simple housework like laundry on a Sunday and farmers getting in trouble with the law for raking hay, things like that. An interesting story comes out of Boston in 1656. A certain Captain Kimball was just returning home from a three-year voyage. He was met by his wife at the doorstep of his house and he kissed her. But this happened to be on a Sunday and the unfortunate sailor was condemned to two hours of humiliation in the public stocks for his public display of lewdness on the Sabbath day. We see the lingering effects of enforcing Sunday as a day of rest in what are known as the blue laws. Know these? In a number of states here in the U.S., you cannot to this day buy alcoholic beverages on Sunday or buy a car or engage in certain kinds of hunting. Horse racing is illegal in some states on Sunday. And there are even a few counties, not entire states, but a few counties here and there where department stores are not allowed to open, even malls. And these counties have malls. Among many Reformed churches, the Sunday as Sabbath conviction was enshrined as church doctrine by the Assembly of Westminster in 1647, which declared that devoting a day of the week for the worship of God is part of God's revealed law and is binding on all, and again that the resurrection of Jesus changed this from Saturday to Sunday, and what you see here are questions and answers from the shorter catechism. So we do not have time here now to look at how things continue in this vein through the next centuries, but suffice it to say that this belief, as codified in the Westminster Confession, has shaped the way Christians have understood Sunday and how they have observed it or felt they should have observed it right up to recent times. Now in many parts of the modern church, um, a lot of this has has relaxed quite a bit, especially the last 20 or 30 years. And um, we have a relaxed attitude here among most of the members. But that is, quite frankly, a lot of this is due um, to cultural trends and spiritual lukewarmness rather than a change in understanding or conviction. And the keeping of the Sabbath sermons are not, you know, as popular as they once were. No one wants to give them anymore, and congregations certainly don't want to hear them. So today, Sunday afternoons for Christians, it's, it's basically a blank check Barbecues, boating, movies, naps, parties, mowing the yard, shopping, video games, go to work if you, you know, if it's scheduled, and of course watching football like the Super Bowl and Super Bowl parties and all that. But it seems to me that Christians would do well if they could defend such freedoms rather than just casually dismiss any nagging thoughts that they might have about them. If nothing else, we need to be equipped to answer challenges from those who would question um, our our liberty in such matters. So let me conclude with just a few takeaway points, and, um, and we'll want to have these points in mind for next week when we continue in part two. In the ancient church, the first three centuries, uh, including the New Testament era, we have no record of Sunday ever being referred to as the Sabbath. Also, we find nothing to suggest that the early Christians believed Sunday was a new Sabbath or replaced the Sabbath or that the commandments about the Sabbath applied to it. And also, in the ancient church before Constantine, Sunday was not a day of rest. Sundays were normal work days. Along this line, there is nothing in Scripture that gives the church the authority to change the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. There's nothing in Scripture that mandates Sunday as the day that Christians are to meet for worship. Christians may have good reason to meet on Sunday and use it as a day of rest and devotion, even refrain from leisure and amusements, but this cannot be imposed as a command from the Lord." So that said, we still have the question of, of you know, whether the fourth commandment itself applies to Christians under the new covenant. Is there anything about it that is applicable? Is the whole thing applicable? If so, what? And why? How does all this work? And so we will take that up next Sunday. All right, Dave, I think you're going to come and close today.
1: Yeah, and similar to what I said last week, uh, as exactly what Wendell was alluding to here at the end, that we are very much a product of our culture to the degree that we're not even aware of it. And that's not necessarily an evil thing, but just the lack of awareness is the thing that can be disturbing. And as Wendell was (coughs) mentioning this morning, we're also a product of our church history, not just our immediate culture. So yeah, it's true. I remember as a kid, and I'm sure Deanna does, it was extremely common to meet Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday, and that was just almost a given part of your week, and in some ways, you know, is it we've become <clears throat> lazy on that or we've brought back, oh, rest is a really important thing and we don't need to be going all the time and maybe all that does need to be examined as we should be examining everything in our lives of, you know, are we simply being <clears throat> influenced by the culture or are we diver- deliberate about our our lives, our daily lives? Uh, and in the case of our church, we've gone through, as you know, we've revisited is is our leadership policy with men and women is that biblical and we've changed that from time to time and uh, The most striking example is revisiting communion and as we became again a product of our culture with using grape juice and Going back and trying to make a biblical case and it didn't work uh, Seemingly to us and so we're okay. We're going to change and so that's that's always a good thing to do I'm a little nervous. I'm getting the feeling we're going to be meeting a lot earlier in the future. I don't know (laughs) If so, Deanna will be going to a different church, I assure you. Um, So we'll see. So please stand. I thought a fitting um, scripture to close with is not this one. This tricks me every week. It's just there. I'm reading something different. Uh, No, so from Romans uh, 12, right before this. So, as usual, you're dismissed to visit. Uh, Don't forget if you're part of the Sunday School Meeting, that's in 10 or 15 minutes.